You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Mr. Bond, you defy all my attempts to plan an amusing death for you. You're not a sportsman, Mr. Bond. Why did you break off the encounter with my pet python? I discovered he had a crush on me. Welcome everyone to the 602 Club. I am so excited to be here as we are about to dive into another Bond film franchise movie. Uh, in fact, um, I'm, I'm, I have these incredible people and you know that they're going to be here with me if I'm talking about Bond. And I'd like you to say hello to Mr. John Champion and make sure some harm comes down. <laughs> thank you thank you very pleased to be here again and uh and talking about a movie which i think is um at the at the at the same exact time misunderstood and understood perfectly so i can't wait Ooh. to figure out what we mine from mm. our discussion today you have intrigued us, Mr. Champion. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, well, Christy, it's, it's fantastic to have you back here to talk Moonraker. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to talk about something that I feel is gloriously terrible. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't want mm. to absolutely rake them through the coals, but there were a lot of moments when I was yelling at the TV. <laughs> Are you talking about Flash? <laughs> I mean, Moonraker. Uh, laser fight in I'm space. Hey, laser fight in space. Spoiler. Uh, hey, spoiler. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Giving it away too early. I, I feel like they, they they missed an opportunity. You know, they could have just been like James Bond, Space Ranger, you know, started a whole new franchise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Uh, and then that could have been the toy that had been in Andy's room was James Bond Space Ranger. <laughs> been so much cooler. Yeah. Uh, well, before we dive into Moonraker, uh, just want to let you know you can find the show everywhere. Uh, we wherever you get your podcasts. If you're over on Apple Podcasts, uh, which is the main place that most people tend to download the show, I've looked at the numbers, so I know. Hit us up with a star rating review. Help the show grow. Really appreciate so many people who've already done that. Uh, it's been a while, and I love just being able to say thank you. If you write a review, I get to call you out in the show and, and appreciate what you did for us. Spend a couple minutes doing that. Uh, you can find all the other shows we do here on Trek FM. There's so many shows, I can't even name them. But we even have a brand new show talking all about Star Trek Discovery, which is coming out. So check that out, as well as everything else we're doing here on the network. Uh, and you can find all of those at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. We have our own website at Trek.FM. While you're there, you can um, visit any of the show pages. And if you're wanting to hit up our listeners-only discussion group, hit discussion there. Or you can go to Facebook uh, and type in the Babel Conference and you'll be able to find our listeners-only discussion group. 
We've got Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And uh, last but not least, if you're wanting to write us an email, I love getting emails from people on the show, go to trek.fm slash contact. So, as we continue Bond, um, guys, I'm a little, I, I mean, I'm, I don't know. The last movie, The Spy Who Loved Me, said that James Bond will return and for your eyes only, but we're talking about Moonraker? Uh, John Filson. Yeah. Um, so we have one little indie cult movie to blame for this. This, this little thing that slipped under the radar in 1977. Uh, you may be familiar with it. It's called Star Wars. You guys have heard of that? Am I just? Mm-hmm. A, a, am I just? I don't know. Isn't that yeah. like the one of like those like a Princess Bride type film? You know? Yeah. Just, I don't know. Caught on later on. People still like it. Yeah. I, and and careful. Uh, do not confuse Star Wars with Battle of the Network Stars because I understand that that you know people might confuse those things too. But no. What about um, Battlestar Galactica? Yeah. Is that not the yes, same thing? Yes. Yeah, so close. Yeah. You are so close. Okay. So say we all. <laughs> So confusing, John. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's all that comes down to. Spy Who Loved Me is a huge hit. It's bomb firing on all cylinders, and they had decided to make For Your Eyes Only next, and then Star Wars just absolutely destroys all box office records for all time as of 1977. And the Bond producers very wisely said, "Well, you know what? We probably need to." change our approach we need to up our game a little bit because this is the craze this is what's hot we need to come out with something that will compete up against what audiences want right now which is really interesting because this is the place where it feels as though bond continues its trend instead of leading it follows yeah yeah which i i think we've seen bond sort of play that game though ever since well, honestly, ever since From Russia With Love, because as we've said on this show many times before, Dr. No is its own thing. Dr. No is not competing with anything. As soon as you make a second Bond film, Bond is competing with itself, and it only has itself to live up to. So, um, yeah, here we are 17 years into the franchise, and Bond has influenced more movies than you can count. You know, like, like I, I always like to say that when you say James Bond, you are no longer talking about a book series. You are no longer talking about a movie series. You're talking about everything right. that Bond has touched in those decades. Well, and it's something that, you know, when I think back to the Bond films, the one that I really latch on to as just trying to copy whatever's happening in culture and not even just Bond feels like live and let die oh yeah because we're kind of trying to you know get on the uh black exploitation film craze and and use that and then of course this film is really trying to jump on the star wars train because it wants to make that kind of cash and it wants to stay relevant and it's so interesting seeing Bond have to battle for relevancy when Bond used to be the thing that made everything else relevant. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's just a, it's an interesting switch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, again, go, go back even earlier and, and all those parody movies, you know, the, the Matt Helm movies and, um, everything that aped James Bond made the James Bond movies have to up their game, you know, and, and it stopped being just sort of the one British spy on his own doing a thing. It became, well, now we've got to up the stakes. We, we've got to make an even bigger, crazier, bolder uh, villain with a bigger, bolder, crazier plan. And, and this is kind of the apex of that. <laughs> this truly is the apex of that. But stylistically, as you're saying, influenced by the, the giant 800-pound gorilla, which is Star Wars. I think even if, the, even if the producers had come to the studios and said, hey, we're going to make uh, For Your Eyes Only, then everybody would say, okay, For Your Eyes Only, where's the space part? <laughs> because, mm-hmm. because it better have space in it, because that's what the kids are buying now. The one thing I do um, think, though, is that I like what you were saying, Matt, about how Bond was originally more of this timeless classic that was its own thing. And like you said, too, John, but then it has taken influence from culture into the films. But it felt like this one just took it too far, that it, it did need some kind of space element, I think, to keep up to appeal to the crowds, but I think too that it just became so outlandish for Bond that you're going, okay, my suspension of disbelief is way, way stretched here. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> There's a fantastic part of the documentary, the making of documentary, uh, because they're very excited as well. Not only are they wanting to jump on the uh, Star Wars space train, but there's the space ride in general is is becoming huge because we're introducing the space shuttle soon at this point in history and they actually wanted to be in line with the first space shuttle launch that doesn't happen but you know this is something that they're very excited about you know they they talk to engineers and nasa and stuff because they don't want to be in the business Cubby broccoli even says this we don't we're not in the business of science fiction we want to be in the business of science fact and then i was like did you actually see your movie? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to give to give them credit, though, to give them credit, this movie came out before the first shuttle launch, and the accuracy of the shuttles depicted yes. in this movie is shockingly good. Really, really is. But here's the thing. I would actually, and this may come back to some of my very mixed feelings about this movie, James Bond is science fiction. You know, James Bond is not a believable character to begin with. James Bond operates in this other world that is science fiction. Go back to You Only Live Twice. Go just one step back to The Spy Who Loved Me. Go go to Dr. No. This is all science fiction. It's simply a matter of how far forward or backward are we going to push, Christy, just like you said, our suspension of disbelief, our, our willingness to be in that world. And... It, I, I kind of, I kind of toy with that because I look at this movie and I go, oh, okay, I have the same feeling that you all do. This is unbelievable. Why are there laser fights in space? And how are these shuttles just showing up like this and not getting caught on radar? And how do they have a space station that got built up there? Okay, I'm going to take a step back and say, you know what? None of this is believable. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I'm going to take it all with a big, big grain of salt. Um, 
even though I, I, you know, this is jumping to the end already, but even though I feel probably like you do, which is that there's all this build up, build up, build up. We feel Bond's world. We're in Bond's world. And then there's just a step too far and we go, okay, I can't connect to this anymore. Well, and it's so interesting because, you know, Fleming's novel is much more grounded. Mm -hmm. Uh, His his book, Moonraker, is about a... Uh, evil guy getting, which is Drax. It's the barely, it's pretty much the only thing they use from the book is the title of the book and the name Hugo Drax. And he gets an ICBM that he is going to use to bomb London. And that's really the main plot. It, it, and so they felt like it wasn't big enough. Uh, obviously, they had just had a Bond villain who was going to take over the entire world. And so it, 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 they got caught in their own trap of, oh, well, I guess we need another villain who's going to take over the world, but how is he going to do it this time? It's got to be different than, like, you know, he's going to live in the ocean. He's going to be in space. This time it's going to be Star the universe. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. So, again, James Bond, Space Ranger. And, <laughs> you know, it's, um, it, 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 it's funny because, you know, the story, probably as Fleming wrote it, and I haven't read Moonraker yet, but my guess is it, it, feels much more grounded Mm -hmm. and if they had wanted to go that way they could have but they really felt the pull to to up their game to be bigger than themselves and it does hurt the the movie because they decide that they want to take it i mean you know it's not even just like a space station, but it's like lasers, guns that, you know, don't go right through the wall of the space station. Like, there's absolutely no logic to so much of this. And they, and some of it, they get so right, like the station having to spin to create gravity and all that kind of stuff. But in, anyway, we can go on and on about that. But it is very interesting that to continue Bond, Bond finds himself legitimately in a whole new world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and one that involves space. And I think something else that's very interesting is that Roger Moore finally had his hit beyond hits with The Spy Who Loved Me. And it 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 cements him as Bond. And but it I in a lot of ways it creates the Camp King, where they latch on to the fact that the humor and the gags are what Roger is best at. And this film, again, takes it another step. And I, I I feel like it makes it, in the end, one of Bond's campiest adventures, especially where we go. And I wanted to know, does this work for you? Does it stay? Does it feel still in line with something like The Spy Who Loved Me? Or do they take it too far for you guys? For me, I, I feel like they it's got merits to both. I think that it is... Now, Roger Moore's style, it's cemented as he's going to be the campy Bond, but there are funny things about it. It's not all bad. I laugh at the jokes, even though they're a little cheesy. Um, but but then there's times that, yeah, they just go too far, like the name of the female Bond girl that's in most of this movie, which I'm not going to name. The actress's name is Lois. Is that She's really very proud of that? By the way, is that she, any better she actually or worse loves than that she has one of? Yeah, that's that's what I'm. Like, <laughs> I that is my question. Worse. Oh, Christy, can okay, you okay. can you? It's slightly worse. Yeah. Okay, Holly, Holly Goodhead is worse than Pussy Galore. Good to know. <laughs> um, 
But it is funny because as a, I just was watching the extras, the actress said that she's actually so proud that she has one of the most, you know, out of this world, you know, lewd names in the, in the Bond franchise. I, I actually don't know if it gets much worse than her and Miss Galore. <laughs> I, I think they might have the franchise on the worst names. Well, I don't Except know. Except maybe plenty. Plenty of cool. Ah, wow. That's just a plethora of bad names. But anyway, you were saying, Chrissy, that there's some good and some bad. So Yeah, it, you know, it, like I said, basically, there's times that I like the jokes that they make and they work for you, but then other times that they just go too far. And like I said, I felt like the, the name for um, Holly was a little too far for me. Um, but it, it it is nice seeing something familiar, I guess, is the thing that I like about this era about all the Roger Moore films, even though he was not my favorite bond ever. I like that familiarity of, well, I can always come back and watch when I'm in the mood for the campiness. Well, so I'm going to part ways with you guys, just, just as a matter of semantics here, not, not really because I disagree with anything that you're saying, but um, I think that, I think that the thing in this movie that is campy is a series of misguided choices by probably the combination of producer, writer, director. And, and let's not forget the editor has a huge hand in what the final product is in a movie. You know, there, there are three movies that you, produ- that, that you uh, make. There's the movie that you write, the movie that you shoot, and the movie you ultimately release. And they're tend to be very different things, you know? Um, And what you do have is obviously the producers kind of playing catch up with what else is out there, but also trying to lead the pack and also trying to to reinvent themselves a little bit. So you got Michael G. Wilson here as his first outing as executive producer. And you can lay a lot of the blame of what goes wrong in Moonraker at his feet. But let's also not forget that Michael G. Wilson is a guy who produced... Casino Royale, and Quantum of Solace, and Skyfall, and Spectre, you know, and some of the best movies of the franchise. So all of these artists are, are making a series of decisions that kind of maybe don't all fire on all cylinders. But where, where I'm going to part ways with, I think, is the popular opinion, is uh, in defending Roger Moore. Now, we talked about how much we like Roger Moore the person on our last show because he had just passed away. And, and that, that's indisputable that he was a great guy. I think the feeling of Roger Moore as James Bond being the king of camp or being the campy James Bond, I actually had a very different reaction in rewatching Moonraker for this show. I feel like Roger Moore was playing it as straight as he could given the horrible circumstances he was given. So if it's something that is a simple little joke, like punching in the uh, on the, the keypad to get into the lab and it plays the theme to Close Encounters, all right, to me, that might be a little bit of a joke too far, but, but it says that Close Encounters exists in that world that James Bond exists in. So that's kind of cool. I like it when movies will, will cross over with other, piece of fi- you know, other pieces of fiction to say, like, this is the real world. But in that real world, this other thing is a piece of fiction. But Roger Moore's reaction to that as James Bond 
He's not the one making the joke. He's not the one giving the smirk to the camera. He's sort of aware of it. Like, this is, yeah, I can't believe it either. But he's not the origin of that joke. James Bond coming up out of the water in the uh, hovercraft gondola. All right, it's a stupid-looking effect. I think we could all agree on that. Even though it was a practical, they actually built that thing. What makes that scene worse is all the reaction shots, the music, and, of course, the double-take pigeon or triple-take pigeon or whatever it is. Roger Moore is sitting atop that thing. He's sitting atop that thing with as much dignity as he can muster. <laughs> so I'm not going to, I I can't totally blame Roger Moore the way that I feel a lot of people will say, well, the movies were campy because of Roger Moore. I feel like the more I watch this movie, he's actually doing it as well as he possibly can. There's no way that Sean Connery would play this, although we've seen Connery at his lowest moments as well. <laughs> but, Diamonds are forever. Right, right, right. But I feel like Moore is actually kind of holding it together. And God forbid if we'd had a different actor in there that we weren't already behind because of a great movie like The Spy Who Loved Me, then it truly would have devolved into something unwatchable. But I'm actually going to give Moore the credit here of making this better than all the things were stacked against this movie to make it kind of bad i'm actually gonna agree with you john because uh the thing about this movie for me is that i would say that probably two-thirds of it until they get into space feels very much like all the stuff that you got in the spy who loved me that works so well uh you know and there are um some of those things that don't work just like it didn't work in in those films, you know, when they would take it too far. You would get the penny whistle effect, you know, that ruined an incredible stunt, you know. <laughs> there are still some of that with the the aforementioned triple take pigeon. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that's that's awful. Um, but the rest of it, it, it felt very James Bond. I, I think the thing that, to me, reading and, and watching some behind-the-scenes stuff, at this point, they are painting by not even numbers. It's almost like, have you seen that? <laughs> Sorry. Have you seen that uh, South Park episode where they're making fun of Family Guy? How Family Guy yes. writes their episodes, yes. which is yes. with manatees and thought balls. <laughs> That's legitimately how they're making Bond films at this point. It's like, oh, here's a location. Well, we need something to go with this. Oh, here's a cool thing. We need something to go with this. And they just kind of put it all together and cobble it together as a, as a Bond, you know, uh, film. And, and that's really how this movie was made because they go to Brazil because of that idea because Cubby Brocky falls in love with the falls there in Rio de Janeiro. They fall in love with the carnival that's happening there. Uh, they they like all of these things. They're, they're going to be shooting in France because the production costs in Britain have gone up so they change it to a uh, a French actor for Drax because of that I mean all of these things kind of come around they, they like Star Wars so it's like they just throw all of this stuff at the wall and hope that it sticks and there are certain parts that do and a lot of that happens to be because Roger Moore is making even some of the craziest things work. Yeah. And then the rest of it, not even Roger Moore at his best can save. And it's not him right. that's making this bad. It's the material. Well, well, therein lies the problem. So you've got a movie here that has 
fantastic moments. Absolutely fantastic moments. Um, the, uh, the scene at Carnival, it was scary to me as a kid. It's scary to me now, just seeing Jaws. And, and nothing actually happens, but the ratcheting up of the tension in that scene is fantastic. Um, I happen to like the fight scene in the, uh, the Vienna glassworks, um, even though <laughs> I know a lot of people don't like that scene. But I think, oh, okay, if you're going to go for it, just go for it and make it really over the top and crazy. Just knock yourselves out. Um, the, uh, all the stuff with Drax in the beginning, uh, I, I love how they transplanted Vicomte from France and put it out in the desert in California. Yes. I absolutely love <laughs> it's that. It's a nice comped picture. Yes, yes. So I absolutely <laughs> love that. Um, but that scene where Drax has his assassin hiding up in the tree and Bond spots him and yes. shoots him. So here's the thing. Taken by themselves, those are really good scenes. The way that they're strung together in the movie, it feels exactly the way that you're pointing out, which is a Bond film by rote. Well, we just have to get Bond into this place so we can make this really cool scene happen. I actually would compare that scene with the assassin uh, in the trees to something like, you know, Bond first encountering Oddjob in Goldfinger, where the, the tension is in these two guys having this sort of intellectual battle, and then you introduce the danger element. And in Goldfinger, you introduce Oddjob. He doesn't actually go directly after Bond, but he throws the hat, he knocks the head off the statue, and you go, okay, this is dangerous. And you've you've cemented how dangerous this relationship is going to be. And that scene with Drax is meant to evoke that kind of feeling. Here's these two guys now who know that they're at odds, who know that given a chance, they're going to kill each other. Um, and then you introduce that other element of danger by having the guy in the tree. This is all really good, but it just felt like, okay, we're going to stop the movie so we can get Bond into this place so we can have that moment and now we're going to get them out of there. <laughs> and a lot of this movie feels that way, where we just have to stop what we're doing. Let's get Bond into a boat. Let's get the boat over the falls. Let's get him on the uh, hang glider because we want to say we've done it. You know? So that that's the rough part about this movie. It's scene after great scene after great scene, but they lack they lack the the sinew to tie them all together, to really bind them into a great movie. Yeah, I completely It's like agree. they're not bonding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it doesn't have the the transition to make them make sense as a whole. Mm -hmm. I completely get what you're saying. But I like that you added that it, it's not Roger Moore's fault that it's the material that he was given because I I do agree especially in that gondola scene that he's really looking like he's holding it together, sitting up on his high horse, even though he's dealing with a ridiculous situation. Um, he's uh, the, the Raj is doing a hell of a job. <laughs> he really is. And the fact yeah. that the gondola ends up being a motorboat gondola. <laughs> yes, yes. Or I'm sorry. What did you guys... Uh, hovercraft. So, no, I yeah. want to ask you guys specifically about that because it feels like we're just getting into this thing where there's more and more boat chases every right? <laughs> every movie because there's two in this film. And I wanted to ask you guys about that because it just seems like we keep seeing boat chases and I don't know if they're sufficiently exciting even if you are in a motorized, specialized gondola. Yeah, well, they... they 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 keep doing that where they – this movie has a number of fake-outs where you have a boat chase and you think, okay, I've had the boat chase moment. 
oh, but wait, there's another boat chase. And I feel that way with um, Ken Adams' set. When Bond goes to Drax's lair in Rio, oh, outside of Rio, and it's this beautiful concrete structure, and you got the streams going through it, and they, they're actually launching shuttles from there. I mean, it's this massive set, and it is purely in the tradition of the great Ken Adams sets. And you kind of feel like, okay, well, the movie could actually end here. They could actually wrap all of this up here. This is the big set piece. This is a big blow off. We've tried to kill Bond again. Oh, but no, 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 no. That was a fake out. We're actually going to take you to an even more grand set. This one in space, which is this huge set that had to be built in France because uh, the, the height of it, they couldn't even build it in England, even if the cost had, had allowed them to. Um, so they're constantly doing that within the same movie. It's not just the movie saying, oh, we have to outdo the previous Bond movies. It's the movie itself saying we have to outdo the scene you just saw 20 minutes ago, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes to great effect. Um, the, uh, you know, some of the earlier fight scenes that felt a little maybe the stakes weren't very high. I, I still get sort of butterflies in my stomach when I see them fighting on the cable cars above Rio. Now, some terrible <laughs> compositing there. You know it's not Roger Moore and Lois Childs, <laughs> but but it's edited nicely in those wide shots when you actually see the stuntmen jumping across. Fantastic. There's some great looking stuff there. And I was going to say too, the scene that was the most uncomfortable for me, like really did feel scary was when um, Corinne is being sent off. You know, he says you're fired and has the dogs chase her. Uh, I was legitimately yeah. scared. I was going, no, he's not going to do that. <gasps> yes. Oh my God, they're going to kill her. You don't it, it was really it. a step. It, it almost felt like something from a Roman Polanski movie. I mean, it just had it a did. very different feel, but I liked it. The way it shot yeah. everything. Yeah, yeah. not like yes. a Bond movie. It felt like a thriller. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's that's one of those th places where I feel like the early parts of this film really set up well. Like, th that's a good setup, you know? Like, you just showed the absolute villainy of the bad guy, you know? And... He's not a guy who even has to get his hands dirty, you know? He just sends the dogs after her, and, like, it, oh, it just, it, it's so utterly creepy thinking about because that's an awful way to die with some Dobermans. But, you know, uh, I feel like you're absolutely right, John. It, it, they, it's like they were selling the movie to themselves, but then they're like, but then we go, and it's in space. <laughs> you know, like, everything is, but then we do it, in, in space. space. Yeah. <laughs> we end the movie and they're having sex in, in, in space. space. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's it's funny because, you know, the film even starts with the opening trying to outdo itself because the last time we had Bond skiing off a cliff and parachuting away and it's just outstanding and now we have to have Bond jumping out of a plane without even having a parachute mm -hmm. and it's like i mean that's a, a technically that's a really cool scene and everything and it's 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 well done but part of you is just thinking like i i don't know i was thinking it's great but it would be better if i hadn't seen what they did in the spy who loved me last time yeah no you're right on um i there's a a simplicity in the grandeur of that stunt from Spy Who Loved Me. And in this, there's no denying the technical achievement. They shot that jump something like 80 times 
or more to get enough footage to put that together. And, you know, you can kind of tell if you really think about it, you go through and freeze stream, oh, okay, that guy's jacket is a little too big. He's got the the real shoot underneath and blah, blah, But it's still an achievement. I mean, there's no two ways about it that it's an achievement. But you're also sitting there kind of going like, okay, I, I, I remember the stunt from the last movie. You, you don't need to do this again, <laughs> you know? And that it feels like maybe this one goes on a little too long, um, I started mm-hmm. laughing when Jaws is diving after him, seeing who can fall faster than the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and why doesn't he just take the parachute off the guy that he's trying to kick out the door in the first place? There you go. There you go. And then and then they have to end it with a joke. They end it with the... And it's a bad, yeah. and it's a bad one, you know? <laughs> yeah, you, you simply don't need that. If you just show Jaws coming back later, yeah, I'd probably believe that Jaws would survive uh, a, a drop from an airplane somehow. Um, or, or you even just sort of cut to the circus tent, but you don't need to follow it up yeah. with the sound effect joke and all that. But yeah, it, I mean, that, that's nitpicking. The point being that that stunt in The Spy Who Loved Me, all you had to do was crank up the theme and show the Union Jack and you're done. You know where you are. You know the world that you're in. You don't need to sell it with a joke. You already sold me with the stunt. At that point, you're like George Costanza. I'm out. I'm out. I did the best thing. I'm out. Uh, so I wanted to to bring this up because we we touched on this and and – you know, talking about all the action stuff and, and we talked a little bit about Drax, but I wanted to ask you because, you know, he definitely continues the whole theme of being a Bond villain who wants to take over the world or find a way to restart the world or, you know, just take your pick. That, that's that's what he's doing. But the last time we talked about how, you know, Carl Stromberg doesn't really have a lot to do. You know, like there's... He felt lackluster, and I was wondering if you guys felt the same thing about Drax here, or if he was engaged enough that you you felt more villainy from him. I definitely felt more villainy from Drax than I ever felt with Stromberg, because it, like we said with Stromberg, it was the whole press orange for murder thing. You know, he was um, secluded in his office with the buttons. Um, I would say, I guess, that he's similar to Drax in that they both don't have to get their hands dirty. They have minions to do their work for them. But definitely Drax seems to feel more like he means what he says he's going to do and that he does he kind of fight dirty. I mean, like using the dogs to kill Corinne, like we said, or, um, you know, having the guy hiding in the tree to shoot Bond while Bond thinks he's just shooting geese. You know, um, I really think that all these different scenes add up together made Drax really um, alluring as a villain because you still had some kind of mystique about him. You don't know everything, but that he also seems very menacing and someone you don't want to mess with. Yeah, I I feel the same way. He's um, he's definitely more dangerous feeling than Stromberg and and he's got his hands in a lot more than Stromberg does Um, he at points is maybe a little too underplayed and and I wonder if that was just sort of you know again it's sort of Bond doing the Bond thing where oh we've seen all these bad guys before him with the very urbane sophisticated slow delivery you know they don't get they don't get their hackles raised they don't get upset no visible anger 
but you just know he's the coolest, most dangerous guy in the room. Um, I, I, I kind of wanted to see a little more out of him, but I, I still like the portrayal. And I still wonder why did we not have James Mason as a Bond bad guy? Because it just feels like they wanted James Mason, <laughs> you know? Although I know that they wanted Frank Sinatra at one point to play oh, tracks. Hmm. That would have been really interesting. Yeah. You know, I I think what helps him is his delivery of the lines and the accent that he has. Mm -hmm. It creates a sense of menace. So, you know, when he says something so wonderful like, Mr. Bond, you defy all of my attempts to plan an amusing death for you. (laughs) It's just, it's dripping with like sarcasm and menace. And he is so good at doing that that I buy him as being evil. And then I do think that the scene we talked about with him sicking the dogs on Corinne is just so utterly disturbing that you get that this guy is somebody who is so psychopathic. He has no problem with letting dogs rip up a woman or destroying the entire world and starting over because he feels himself to be some sort of God that can do that. Like, he has a God complex, and it's a scary one. Mm -hmm. It's done well, if you ask me. And so it does make him a much more compelling villain, even though I would—I still feel like I would like to see him somehow more active, I guess. But he— the fact that he is willing to engage with Bond one-on-one reminds me a lot of the relationship that you had with Goldfinger, where Goldfinger was willing to talk to Bond and— meet with Bond and, you know, um, basically plan all these elaborate deaths for Bond uh, because apparently, you know, just shooting a guy in the head, you know, it's too good, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, seeing that some harm comes to Bond is is hard after, you know, what is it, 24 films, 25 mm-hmm. films now? And, and I love so. how, you know, Drax, in the tradition of Bond bad guys, he's planning so far ahead, so many steps ahead, that like um, when he needs to uh, dry off Mr. Bond and he's going to throw him into that room that is right under the uh, right under the engines of the shuttle that they're about to launch, right? He goes into the room and what does he find? He finds Holly and like a, a, a table and all these chairs around it, all these computer systems. So Death Star-ish. It's by so the way. very Death Star-ish, right? But then the, the room opens up and then there's the launch mechanism for the shuttle right above them. I'm thinking, okay, he had to sit down with the designer and say, well, we're going to need this computer system that is going to be very expensive and very important for the launch of our shuttles. But, but let's build it under the engines in case I need to kill somebody there and I can just incinerate them that way. And the builder could say like, you know, you could just build the computer system like a half a mile away so then you don't have to worry about frying out the launch systems. Like, no, 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 we're going to do it my way. We just need to make it really, really fireproof. You never done, you, you never know when you're going to need to kill somebody, mm-hmm. John. Exactly. Yeah. Elaborately. Exactly. Very elaborately. Yes. Uh, I mean, it takes Home Alone to a whole new level. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Um, wonderful to have Jaws back. You know, uh, listening to uh, the the and watching the the behind the scenes, I, I really love this because uh, they they were talking to uh, Richard Keel, and he was saying that uh, one of the producers, they're kids were like daddy we love jaws we want jaws to be back but why does he have to be a bad guy 
And so they do Jaws in Love. And I wondered how that worked for you guys. <laughs> for him to basically find Bernadette from uh, <laughs> The Big Bang Theory as a, as a wife. It cracked me up. I couldn't believe what I was watching because you're used to seeing this guy that you think of as almost a vampire that likes to kill people, particularly women, by biting them on the neck. Um, and then suddenly he sees this adorable little, like, she almost looks Swedish to me because she's got these cute little blonde pigtails and a very bouncy chest. Um, and, and she's just like, oh, my goodness. And they don't ever actually speak. It's just that moment of the love at first sight and the silly music. And you're just going, what? But then somehow in the end in space, they seem to make it work and have him turn around. Spoiler spoiler alert. But it, it, it cracked me up. I thought it was fine. Yeah, it, giving them the music cue, I thought, was a little over the top. That, that took me out of it for a moment. But what I love is that Jaws's transition into a good guy, the motivation actually felt real because, again, Roger Moore delivered it the right way mm-hmm. to say to Drax, but really saying it to Jaws, oh, okay, so when you're done with this, anybody who doesn't meet your standards of physical perfection will be eradicated. Are you hearing this, Jaws? Are you hearing this? And you see the, the change in his face. And then you know where this is going to go for Jaws. I thought that was actually played really nicely. And I do appreciate the joke that you have them pouring the champagne. And then the one line that Jaws gets in two movies. Well, here's to us. That I, I, I thought that was golden when I first saw the movie. And it, it still worked for me. Well, and what I like is what you were talking about, John, is that it allows you to have the turn be because he realizes that he's really is just being played like mm-hmm. it, and and it, it was kind of neat to see the way that Drax treats him is like you work for me you obey me you know like you're my dog I I treat you like one and you obey like one and t- for for that whole message of you know uh whatever some person's idea of perfection is you know as if we even understand what perfection is None of us are God. So, you know, he's, put again, putting himself in that godlike position to say, oh, I know what perfection is. And that we're all made differently. Like, you, me, Christy, neither, none of us are alike here, you mm-hmm. know? Like, but n- who's to say what, what, you know, I look like and what you look like, John, that either one of us has any part of perfection whatsoever, and we're both men. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. You know? It, yeah. It's just, it's a really, it actually is a really cool message to have in this movie. It's surrounded by craziness at that point. But at that moment, there is something really powerful being said. And I kind of like that in the, that place, Bond reaches out to somebody who's been a villain and finds a way to pull him on his side because it, it, Bond realizes it's going to be helpful for him as, as the character of Bond. But he also realizes it's better for Jaws, too. Mm-hmm. And it, even though all the things that Jaws has done, I don't feel like Bond feels like Jaws deserves to die like this. Yeah. yeah. And that's just kind of a, like, when you start to put it in that kind of context, you're like, wow, this movie got really, oh, wait, no, they just start shooting lasers at each other. <laughs> so, you know. But yeah, you're right. It they does... legitimately start shooting lasers at each other at that point. But it does at least have those 
brief moments where there's that theme that's so important of he's always been treated as this thing that villains use toward a means toward an end and finally realizes what's been happening to him and that he has the right to choose. And I love that. Um, And so that makes the whole love affair less silly and makes sense. And like you said, John, see the change in his face of, oh, wait, that means I'll get eradicated, too. He doesn't care about me. So I I liked that. Um, But yeah, I I wanted to say, too, that I even felt like the scene where Drax is standing on the platform speaking to all of them in the space station, his minions, his, you know, perfect people. It really even felt like... Me, me, me. <laughs> it, um, to be kind of serious for a minute, it felt like a, a reminder of why the Holocaust was so bad and, you know, about that this whole idea of a perfect race doesn't exist and that no one has the right to decide who allows, who's allowed to live and who's not. Yeah, the idea of, of any kind of superiority in that sense, um, you know, I just who knew we would get into this topic talking about Moonraker, I but know. you're absolutely 100% right, you know, in the world we live in today, seeing those kind of things rear their ugly head again, and that the idea that anyone is superior to anyone because of any part of them, you know, um, whatever color they are, whatever race they are, whatever religion they are, whatever, you know, it that's just... It, it's absolutely antithetical to everything that what we know of as good stands for. And that's one of the things, like, it was, it's funny. This went, something that uh, I really liked, I was reminded of today, was there's this great uh, quote in uh, the comic Kingdom Come by Superman. And he said, there is right and wrong in the universe, and the distinction is not hard to make. And at this point, there is right and wrong, and the distinction here is not hard to make, even for Jaws. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a, like you said, it's this beautiful little moment that happens with this character and in this film. And it's too bad that the movie at this point is being a little too silly to actually allow itself to say something more or to really drive that point home even more. Like you're talking about, Christy, like this idea of like connecting him more somehow with like, the Holocaust and being kind of another Hitlerish type, you know, I think that could be great. Um, you know, it, unfortunately, we're not in the Dalton area yet where they're going to maybe try and say something, and we're not in the Craig area yet where they're really going to be not afraid to say something. So, but I, I think it's absolutely that it's one of the, the gems in this moment. I mean, it's absolutely great that we get a chance to talk about something so deep and so important. Um, and at the right time in, t- in history, too, as we're recording this, I think. So. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the women. Because um, <laughs> sure. there are three of them in this movie. Uh, I, I joked that uh, I felt like maybe Bond was working on his uh, his STD collection or something at this mm-hmm. point. Because he's just bedding everybody in this film. Um, but one of the, the, the main women uh, is one of Drax's personal pilots, uh, Corinne. Before and I have to say, I really liked her character, and I liked the the way in which, um, you know, she classically falls for Bond and she helps him, but it's almost as if like somebody and and this is how I read it. So Christy, tell me if if you saw this at all, but it felt like somebody finally saw her and treated her like an actual person, and that was what allowed her to 
feel like I, I should help this guy because he actually treats me like a real human being instead of just like this thing that gets used for whatever, you know, my piloting skills. Like she, she felt like an actual person, uh, when she was around James. And I thought that to me, that's, that's how I read it. I don't know if that's something you picked up on. I was wondering. No, I completely agree with what you're saying. That's what I picked up on as well, because you see at first, she really seems to always have this aura about her where I guess the best phrase would be, she's always on. She has that very professional demeanor that she's got her spiel and she knows what she's supposed to do and everything um, to give people a tour, I guess, of Drax's home and, you know, bring them over to meet him and everything like that. You know, she's very professional. But then, you know, when Bond starts to make that move, like wanting to know more about her and, um, you know, even in a cheesy way, you know, putting the moves on her, um, she feels like she's not um, hiding behind that professional facade anymore. It feels like she really feels comfortable with him once they're in that bedroom scene. Um, and then she has that desire to want to help him with the safe. Um, and then even later defends herself when Drax accuses her of helping Bond, um, saying, no, I didn't. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, because she feels like she's so good at having that facade on all the time. Um, but yeah, I, I will say too, I also loved her wardrobe. The costume yes. on all the women yes. in this movie was beautiful. I really wanted Corinne's um, yellow and white jumpsuit. It was interesting to me too, because as you're saying that, I'm thinking, you know, when he first comes to her room, she immediately offers herself for sex. Yeah. Basically saying, isn't that why you're here? And he says, actually, I hope you're not, you know, offended, but I'm actually here for information. And I did like the and joke, too, that she says, my mother gave me a list of things not to do on a first date. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, uh, what what I think um, allows her to be comfortable with Bond is that he, he actually saw her as a person that was more than just a body uh, and something to be used Obviously, they have sex, and they both seem to enjoy it because she continues to help him. Um, but it, again, it was this very interesting thing that I didn't feel like normally you see. Usually, he just kind of beds a woman and he's done. But this one seemed to have more to it. I don't, what did you think, John? Did you pick up any of what we're, Christine and I were talking about? Yeah, I, I was going to say that this is one of the reasons that I really like doing our rewatch because Moonraker is not a movie that I go back to and rewatch very often. But um, my memory of this character was, again, just sort of that very two-dimensional sacrificial lamb. She's there, she's the pilot, she does the thing, she gets killed. Um, there's way more to her, as you're pointing out. And I, I'm glad that I was able to rewatch this and pick up some of those subtleties and kind of build this backstory in my mind about why she's there, why she would help Bond, how how big of a deal that is for her, and how she's trying to cover it up. I, I thought it was a, a really nicely played scene. And yes, and and Chris, we may come back to the style here of the movie in a little bit, um, because I, I love the style in The Spy Who Loved Me. And here, this is just a couple of years later, and it has a very different feel the style is very different. It feels like this movie is populated entirely by Halston models. 
you know? Mm -hmm. They all look fantastic, and they all look like they would fit in right at Studio 54 or something like that. It's a really sleek, sexy, but sophisticated look throughout this movie. And, and, and even just people that you get a glimpse of, you know, Drax has got a couple of women who are sitting there in his drawing room while he's waiting. You see them again later as part of the master race, but everybody has this really polished otherworldly look, which is appropriate to the theme of the movie. Doesn't get a ton of screen time, but Manuela, uh, who is his contact in Rio. And when I say contact, I, do mean contact because that's about it because <laughs> she is the lady that he just sleeps with to pass some time in rio look he she's gorgeous says... and and every woman in this movie is completely gorgeous um uh, but the the thing that i will remember about that is then going back to that scene at carnival that was just so scary because you don't know where it's going to go um she overplays a little bit at the end that she's a sort of like breathless at the anticipation of maybe getting killed. But like, hey, uh, you're fine now, Manuela. Let's let's perk up. Let's get out of here. <laughs> you know. I was gonna um, say, yeah, the lead up for that was a little long. Yeah, it felt right. like she was standing there going, "Oh no, I'm gonna die. Oh no, yeah. he's still there. Oh no, yeah. he's still there." And you're just like, "Oh my god, just <laughs> it's do like it." Like somebody's on the like cement roller coming at right. her like really slow, <laughs> right. and she's right. just standing there going. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And not even screaming. Like, you could be screaming no, just, right now. Yes, Just gasp. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's great. Um, so we do finally get to Lois Childs playing Holly Goodhead, um, and CIA agent and astronaut who joins Bond. And I, what did you guys think about her? Uh, this is something that's a, it, really interesting for me because, you know, some of the Bond women... Uh, and and I do actually say I really liked Karen in this movie. I, I liked the actress uh, who's also named Karen, and I thought she was really lovely and and did a great job in the role. And I I don't know. I'm almost this is my opinion, so I'll just go ahead and give it. I kind of wish that they switched places because I would have liked to spend more time with uh, Karen and less time with Lois. That maybe that's mean, but no, I don't think that's mean. I. I disagree respectfully, um, but uh, but I understand what you mean. I think that they both brought something different to the table, and I think that's why you would say that, is that um, Lois feels like the Bond woman that I've been waiting for as a woman, just that she feels like this total badass. Like, she just, she's an astronaut. She can give Bond a run for his money. I like their witty banter of, can I trust you? No way. Um, you know, but then he keeps saying, well, we keep working together somehow. Um, you know, they just have this wonderful relationship. Um, but then I see what you mean, too, with the virtues of Corinne. She has that much more soft, comfortable um, nurturing vibe about her. Um, and so it's really more, I guess, whatever appeals more to you in a Bond woman. Um, but I, I absolutely well, love And her. I wanted to say one thing real quick is it's not so much the way they're portrayed. It was just I liked that actress better. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that the character of Holly is is not something that I'm connecting to. I just wasn't I didn't like Lois as much as an actress as I liked Corinne. Um, and so I feel, I think maybe what I'm just saying is Lois is not the best actress. Okay. Is what I'm just saying. 
not that the character is bad because I think the character is great. I love the back and forth with Bond, all that jazz. I just I wasn't as in. You thought uh, Lois didn't do a good job with Holly. Yeah, it it didn't. It doesn't work as well as I want it to because of where I think the characters, like you're saying, going for a woman character in a Bond film. Mm -hmm. Um, I I love Lois Childs. I really do. But I I think the character is not as strong as she could be. And there are a couple of things that are a little weak in here. Um, First of all, we we're coming off of the Spy Who Loved Me. And that was kind of the perfect pairing of a foil for Bond. Uh, She's tough, she's beautiful, and she's an enemy agent. Um, Dr. Goodhead works for the CIA. James Bond's best friend works for the CIA. And there's never any question about whether they're on the same side or should be working together. So it feels a little forced that they have any kind of... um, maybe adversarial relationship as they do after he discovers that she's really with the CIA. That just feels kind of like shoehorned in there because they needed to create a little drama with them. Um, But, you know, I was thinking that, uh, and we we haven't gotten there yet, but we will, uh, the world is not enough. And one of the worst Bond women and worst uses of a Bond woman uh, was Denise Richards as Christmas Jones. (laughs) All right. And you're only talking about at the time that was shot. Uh, and she's and which she, last line is worse? Which last uh, line is worse? Yeah. I, oh, I, I know my vote. <laughs> um, but and you're supposed to buy her as a what nuclear physicist, I think. Um, and at the time, I think that Denise Richards is maybe a couple of years younger than Lewis Childs was at the time of making this movie. And it's just night and day in terms of somebody who is sophisticated, mature, sexy, and not in a kind of dumb, salacious way. Um, I, I just like her. And, and, yeah, and she can wear the hell out of those designer clothes. So, and that um, hair. And that hair. Magnificent hair on that woman. So um, I, I really like her. Um, I loved Lois Childs in Broadcast News. Uh, if you saw that movie, uh, um, gosh, uh, Holly Hunter, um, Albert Brooks, such a good movie. And she plays this, uh, she's probably like in her early 40s, and she's playing the the newscaster who kind of hasn't aged into the role. And she's wonderful in that movie, not enough of her in that movie. Um, but I, I, I've liked her ever since Moonraker, and I just wish that there were even more for her to do in Moonraker. Yeah, I love I love that we're like all over the place with this one. <laughs> and and just in that conversation because um I don't know. I, I don't know why it was that just something about her just it wasn't connecting with me as much. Um but I did I mean I liked what they were trying to do. I do agree with you, John, that um again you're comparing to the spy who loved me and that kind of hurts. Mm-hmm. You know, and it almost felt like it would have been cooler to do to reference another Brosnan movie, do what they do in, um, you know, God forbid I speak its name, but Die Another Day, uh, where you have the female agent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's American, but actually have them just be. It's it. They're just. It's like she's like the American Felix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. make that a thing in, instead of it being this kind of cat and mouse game that they play. It might have been a more fun then 
um, to, to not have that kind of forced animosity, which is kind of weird since the Americans loaned the shuttle to the British. <laughs> and like, why wouldn't they be working on the same side right. to return? It just doesn't make a lot Thank of sense. Thank you. So yes. I wanted to ask you guys, so we have uh, music and a theme by some very uh, familiar people. Uh, Shirley Bassey is back to do the theme. And then we have John Barry back to score the film. And so I wanted to ask you guys how those work for you here, since it's kind of like we're, we're just getting the band back together. It felt natural to me. I thought that the um, opening song was kind of forgettable. It, you know, I, I like that it goes with the traditional style of all the Bond openings, and I love Shirley's voice. Um, but it was just, you know, okay, well, there, there it is. Um, but as far as the score throughout the film, I thought that that was perfect. I mean, it just seemed to match every scene, especially like in the, um, the cable cars and everything. It, it just went with it perfectly. I don't know about you, John. Yeah, no, I, I agree exactly with what you said, because I feel like the, the opening song for this movie, very much like the movie, is Bond by rote. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not to diminish John Barry's talent. It's not to diminish Shirley Bassey's talent. It's just that uh, of the three that she did, this is definitely my least favorite of the three because it feels like they're sort of marking time. Well, we have to have her in there and she, she's got to do something kind of cool and sultry and jazzy and it's got to fit the theme of the movie. Okay, here, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. There's it, not a lot of coolness behind it. It's just sort of like, well, we, we have to have something. <laughs> so like it's a formula again. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, but I do agree with you. I think the score is really good and it really punctuates the scenes nicely. It's not the most memorable, but it is very good. Well, and he does some fun things too. John Barry is uh, he brings back some action cues from other Bond films like the Thunderball mm -hmm. music uh, when they're in the chase scene. Yeah, 007. The large the, river. The 007 theme, yeah. Yeah, and all those kind of things. So I, I felt like it, it also worked very well. Um, it felt a little bit more timeless because it's less based in the 70s. It just kind of felt like a classical Bond score. Um, this movie came out the year I was born, so <laughs> that dates me. Um, and uh, I, I'm absolutely there with you. Shirley Bassey's song, it's not bad. It's just so forgettable. I mean, I don't even remember any of the lyrics. Uh, th there seems to be very little hook to it or anything to really get you into it. It's just kind of there. As I feel like the opening credits are, too, watching them, they're... There's very little going on, and it just kind of feels like, well, let's throw a silhouetted, silhouetted naked lady in the disco ball, and you know, it just it's it's not imaginative, and I think this is this is the strange thing about this movie. I kind of I guess we can transition a little bit into ratings, but that's the thing that's strange about this movie. It's going to be taking place in space. Is that much of it doesn't seem to have a ton of imagination is that did you guys feel like that at all as you're watching it like john you mentioned like i think ken adams sets here are just as good as they've always been for the most part and and the production design looks good the special effects are wonderful in this movie uh the this the, the the costumes like you were talking about the 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 way the characters look and feel 
you can tell it's the late 70s, but still there's kind of a, a night. I don't know. Bond suits look very nice and tailored. Mm-hmm. They don't look t- too big or, you know, like just kind of right in between. Like, all that stuff looks great, but it just, I don't know. The, the imagination just didn't seem to be there. Yeah. I, and, you know, I would even say that this this is the movie that marks the end of the classic era of Bond. It's not the end of Sean Connery's run. It's not something else. This is the movie. And for a a big part of that reason is that this is the last Bond movie that Ken Adam designs. So no Bond movie from here on out is going to look like any of that other stuff. The design language of the world of Bond has had a similar thread since Dr. No, and and with some excursions off of that as well. Um, it, but e- even, in, um, even in Diamonds Are Forever, you have that fabulous John Lautner house, which speaks directly to the kind of designs that Ken Adam was doing, just on a different scale, you know? So this is the last time that Bond is going to look and feel the way that classic Bond does. It's a whole other thing when we get into the 80s and beyond. For better or for worse, you know. Um, so this really, more than anything else, is the send-off. The, this is the swan song of that that period, that original Bond stuff. Um, so last time we get, well, and Bernard Lee. I, I was about to say, yeah, film too, yeah, yeah. Last time we get to see Bernard Lee as M. Uh, he died during pre-pro on uh, For Your Eyes Only, so um, he needed to be replaced. Um, so. My my feelings about this movie are kind of bittersweet for uh, for a lot of those reasons, you know. And and what you what you led into this by saying, you know, about the the haphazard kind of pulling this movie together is sort of like they had the Bond puzzle, but not all the pieces there. They they had the cool parts, you know. Say like, hey, we can put this piece of the puzzle together. That's got the explosions in it. And we got this piece of the puzzle over here. That's got the cars in it. And we got this piece of the puzzle that's got the neat set pieces. But we're missing some of the other pieces that really will tie it all together to paint the perfect picture, you know. Um, so I'm I, I'm kind of I'm sad to see this go, and yet at the same time. I feel like, wow, what a bummer to watch this after The Spy Who Loved Me, you know, because that one, they were absolutely firing all cylinders. I'll back you up, Matt, on what you said about the special effects. The special effects are tremendous. They, they are absolutely fantastic special effects. And there's a lot of stuff being done now with CG that cannot touch what was done in this movie with practical effects. Um, and if I had to give it a rating, um, I'm actually... If you had asked me this before I rewatched this for our purposes here, I probably would have ranked it well on the the downside of one to ten, two, three, four, or something like that. But there's just enough here that I enjoyed, just enough that I'm going to go right in the middle, and I'm going to say I'm going to give this a five. I'm going to give it five incredibly slow laser beams. Uh, going back to that scene with Q outside of Rio and they're testing that laser and it's just melting the face of a, of a plastic dummy and you're like, wow, this is the worst laser I've ever seen in my life. I'm going to give it five incredibly slow lasers out of 10. 
I um, definitely want to say, John, that I feel like you are always the person that makes me get a different perspective on my opinion of a movie. Once we get into talking about this together as a group, I feel like, you know, I, I start out saying it's gloriously terrible and then you give me a little bit of perspective of, well, there are some redeeming qualities. And I just, I, I love that you have this part where you're like making me think a little bit more about my opinion on it and not just absolutely burn it to shreds. Um, and, and here's why it's terrible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then here comes Christy to shoot it down. Um, I'm honestly just a little bit above, surprisingly. I, I give it a 6 out of 10 um, because it had those themes that were so strong. I think that it forgave some of the ridiculousness of it. Um, you know, this that whole moment we talked about with Jaws Revelation um, you know, and it being similar to Hitler and everything, um, definitely to with the, the creepiness of Drax as a villain. Um, I did actually recognize before you said it was Close Encounters that I knew that tune, um, have not seen that movie a million times, but for some reason that sticks out in your mind always. Once you've heard it, you know it. Um, and, and like I said, even in spite of the ridiculous things like the boat sprouting a raft and then wheels and a triple take pigeon um, and <laughs> women that are wearing ridiculous attire for being in space. These like mini skirt white dresses that are almost like lederhosen at the top. I don't get it. Um, but uh, I think that Roger Moore does a great job with what he's given, like you said, John, and keeping it grounded Um and I think that there are some funny things that really make it work. So it, like I said, for me, it's six out of 10. Um, I'm going to say flying space chairs. <laughs> Whatever Ooh. they're fighting in the little nice. joysticks. Right. right. <laughs> yes. We all want one. You know what <laughs> we do. Yeah. Oh, I, I want uh -huh. one. Um, I, it, it's funny because, you know, I, I went into this movie thinking, oh, God. Please just let me get through Moonraker. Not yay, Moonraker. Um, yeah, no, not yay, Moonraker. But I was watching it and I was realizing, man, I'm really enjoying this setup. I'm really enjoying this movie. Like it, it feels like a lot of the stuff that I got in The Spy Who Loved Me. And it's not as polished or perfect, but it's still, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd watch it over and, um, Live and let die mm -hmm. anytime, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, seriously. Uh, our diamonds are forever. I'd totally watch this over that, you know? Just take it a little bit too far, and I kind of feel like, uh, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. No worry, we're still flying half a ship. <laughs> um, you know, it's... We've got half a movie here, and and therefore, it's half a rating, you know? It's, 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 it's five out of ten space lasers um so and and i do have to say one of the coolest things about how they created the special effects for this movie they didn't have time to go through the compositing so what they did is they they would shoot a scene so the space shuttle flying across and they would wind the film back 
and then they would shoot the next layer, and then they would wind the film back and shoot the next layer. They did this one one section. They did that. I think it was the Space Laser battle. They were talking. They did that ninety six times Whoa. to get that right. Which, yeah. if you know anything about film, which we don't know a lot about these days because we don't shoot on film anymore. Every time you're loading the film and putting it back, you have the ability to completely ruin everything you've done. You could get a scratch on it. And the fact that it, it really does, it looks fantastic. The, the design work for the model is, is amazing. The shots in space look great. None of that stuff is bad. It's just the fact that we're in a James Bond movie and something just feels a bit off here. But I don't hate watching this movie. And I could re-watch this movie and actually have an enjoyable time because by the time you get to the end, I'll go with the silliness. You know what? I, um, I'm going to adjust my rating. I, I'm going to go to 6 out of 10 because, uh, Christy, you, you've convinced me and, Matt, you've actually convinced me by saying that because even though you picked a 5, I, I think all the things that you're saying are reminding me of all the things that I really like about this. So even though it's incomplete, even though it's imperfect... Um, like I said, we're, we're not going to get Bond like this ever again. And um, I, there's an artistry here, even if it's just some of the effects. Uh, the, there's still an artistry here that I think I really appreciate. Um, so, yeah, let's add one more point. Uh, you yeah. know, it. yeah, no, I'm going to do the same thing. Oh, because I, I was just, <laughs> I know the reason is, is because I'm thinking, okay, I'd watch this before the, for, before Die Another Day. Or I, yeah. I'm thinking to myself, I'd watch this before Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun and Diamonds Are Forever. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of Bond movies that I'd watch this before that we've already seen. Mm -hmm. Yep. That means that, yes, this deserves at least one more. Yeah. So I think we're, yeah. All right. We, we've all talked ourselves into being unanimous. <laughs> yeah, it's, nice. It's fantastic. Nice. It, is, it is not a perfect movie, but there is still a lot to be enjoyed in Moonraker. And I'm really... I, I just love doing this show with you guys because the way that we talk through it, you know, sometimes it accentuates the bad in it and there's nothing we can do to help that. But sometimes it also accentuates the good to make up for the bad. And I think we did that this time and it's it's a joy to have gotten there. And I can't wait uh, because as per the schedule right now, our 150th episode is actually going to be for your eyes only. Yes. So we'll yes. be doing the 602 Club 150th episode together, and I can't wait because, you know, uh, that movie is definitely a reaction to this movie, and it, so it will be interesting to see how that holds up. But you'll have to wait until that, and uh, while you're doing that, um, I just want to say thank you to our associate producers here through Patreon, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson, for their gracious support of the network and this show as associate producers, and Honestly, without people like them, there's absolutely no way that Trek FM can happen. It is a massive network. We have so much going on. We have so many shows we're producing. We do it ad-free. And so we ask you, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and just see how you can be part of the team. Help us out. Make sure we keep all this great content coming to you from the 602 Club and every other show we do on the network. It's top-notch. And um, we love giving back to you. Um, there's a bunch of different ways that we do that through the patron zone and other areas in which we are able to you know exclusive content uh producer credit seats on the development team we've got uh things like the patron zone that you can get into you can get early access to the content all sorts of stuff so again just go over to patreon.com slash and see how every little bit helps um gosh christy uh this has been a blast 
you uh, actually talked us into liking the movie even more uh, because of your persuasive arguments and, and great points. And let everybody know where they can find you if they want to talk some more Bond or anything else that you're doing uh, geekdom-wise because you, you do a lot. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I am on uh, Twitter and Instagram primarily um, as more Christy, uh, M-O-R-R-C-H-R-I-S-T-Y. Um, and I love to talk about Bond, Star Wars, sometimes Star Trek. Um, I did at least see the last movie. Don't know if I'm going to see the next one <laughs> from what I hear. Um, and uh, Dragon Con coming up, I'll be talking about a lot. So um, look out for two Star Wars panels I excitedly am getting to do for that um, along with Matt. Uh, I don't know if we're on any together. I don't think we're on any together. But yes, we're both doing panels there at Dragon Con. So yeah. If you're in the Atlanta area, uh, this will be coming out on Friday, the 25th of August, 2017. Come see Christy and I. We'd love to see you. And John, man about town, master sailor, just got back from another great cruise. Uh, If people want to, you know, talk to you, uh, where can they find you? I know you love talking Bond and Star Trek. You know, I love talking Bond. I love talking Star Trek. uh, uh, Maybe some Man from Uncle, and uh, maybe tell maybe tell me about your latest cruise adventures. Um, If you want to do that, hit me up at DVD Geeks on Twitter. Uh, If you want to talk just Star Trek and purely Star Trek, how about you check out at Mission Log Pod? That would be the Twitter handle for. Uh, the other show that I do uh, with my fabulous co-host, Ken Ray, and that would be missionlogpodcast.com, Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Well, you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. I'm under Instagram with that same name. I'm here on the network uh, doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I'm over on the Nerd Party Network. I've got a couple of shows over there that you'll want to check out. I'm doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills, where we're talking all about Star Wars. It really is fun. I hope you will, uh, if you like what we've done Star Wars-wise here on the 602 Club, uh, this is the show that birthed that one. So check it out. Uh, I'm doing Owl Post with Drea Kaufman, walking through every single chapter of Harry Potter. We are almost done with the Chamber of Secrets right now and about to dive into the Prisoner of Azkaban as we're recording this show, so make sure you check that out. And then I have one more show I hope you will uh, give a listen, and that's called Cinema Stories, and that is where we look at film through the lens of faith. And you can find all of those shows on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Yeah.